0: Well, good morning. good morning. How are you guys? Good. Doing good. It's great to see you. Great to be with you. Um, like Donnie shared, my name is Mackenzie Matthews. I am our Connections Pastor here at Timberline, and thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you for joining us online, and a special hi to our friends and traditions. We sure appreciate you all. Uh, well, today we are continuing our series we've been in, in the book of Mark, called Jesus Hope, Help and healing, where we've been focusing on Jesus, what he did with his life and his ministry through the book of Mark. This morning, we are looking at a very well-known, very influential account from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. I want to read it together, and then I want to break it down to try to ask, what is Jesus saying, and what does he have for us today? So let's just dive right in, shall we? You guys ready for that? Okay. Okay. So in verse 13, it says, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. (laughs) Have you heard this before? What is happening here? We could sum it up by saying it's a loaded question. And a stunning response. So to fully grasp this, we got to read the room, right? Understanding the context is key, always, always. You want to really understand scripture, you have to do the work of learning the context. So putting ourselves in the timeline, this is Tuesday, in the final week of Jesus' life. As Pastor Foth said a few weeks ago, Jesus is turning the corner towards home. Two days ago, he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey. Monday, yesterday, he went into the temple courts exposing all of the corruption, right? Driving out money changers, flipping the tables, judging what God's house had become. And then this day, Tuesday, there are cat and mouse games the religious leaders play to try to trap and discredit Jesus. We looked at this last week with Pastor Josh, when Jesus shared the parable of the wicked tenants who dishonored the owner and killed his beloved son, the cornerstone. Yeah. The meaning of this parable was not lost on the religious leaders. It was quite clear <laughs> who Jesus was talking about, and it was infuriating to them. Pay attention to the tension. The tensions are high, high, high. Have you ever found yourself in a tense situation okay. where you could almost feel the dynamics of what's happening? It's like they say the elephant in the room, and the tension is so big you can't deny it. Now I'm a feeler, <laughs> sure am. Some people watch the news, I like to say I feel the news, you know what I mean? Any of you guys like me? Feeler types? A few? few? I'm the type of person who experiences the world through my feelings. Now, it's sports season. Some of you know my, my husband, um, Pastor J. Matt. He's our youth pastor. And he actually spent this weekend as our high school retreat. They have 104 high school kids and leaders who are up in Estes. We continue to pray for them. Uh, but yeah, my husband's the best. He really is. Um, but he's a passionate sports fan. passionate coach. Um, and specifically, when we are watching Tennessee volunteer football, if you know, you know, right? Go balls had a devastating loss last night, as I see to CSU. Have you guys watched that? Ugh, devastating. But when we're watching, specifically, University of Tennessee football, okay, my husband will make his feelings known to our TV screen, <laughs> right? He will express himself, and it feels like conflict to me. Right? It has nothing to do with me. But it feels like tension. Now, he's passionate, and I love that about him, but again, I experience the world through my feelings. It's not always a good thing, but it's definitely how God made me. But even if you're not a feeler like me, I would bet you've had moments where you could feel the tension. Like they say, so you can cut it with a knife, right? It's that kind of tension that's the backdrop of this account. Pay attention to the tension. If you notice the first verse here, we can just read right past it. It says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus in his words, right? Pharisees and Herodians. Now we've seen the Pharisees a whole bunch, right? Who are they? They're religious leaders. They were incredibly devoted to the Torah. They were fierce about living obediently to the law. We tend to think of them like the beady-eyed bad guys in these accounts, right? But they were people who were serious, very serious about their practice of faith, how they lived their everyday lives informed by the Torah. Their devotion, their tenacity is actually to be respected. But we see this hypocrisy exposed, this corruption exposed, where despite their devotion, they lost the point. Their devotion wasn't the problem, their hypocrisy was. You can be devoted to the truth and be unloving. You could be loving and neglect the truth. Both are destructive. And we see Jesus time and time again bringing stern correction to them. And they didn't take it well. (laughs) It's the Pharisees. Now, who are the Herodians? This isn't the first time we see them in Scripture. We saw them back in Mark chapter 3, again with the Pharisees. After Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, it's in verse 6, and they say, uh, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. There's been tension for these two groups of people with Jesus this whole time. We see the mention of the Herodians only a handful of times, but we know that they're a political group. They're followers of Herod the Great. Now, we don't know how formal this party was, but it's clear that they're a group they are Jewish, but they also have allegiance to Herod, allegiance to Rome. They would be the kind of people who would say, you know, we kind of like the perks of the Roman living. Um, the Hellenism, the advancement, the prosperity, the progress, you know, the plumbing <laughs> and the arts. Right? The health care, the pursuit of knowledge, the entertainment, all coming from the Roman Empire. Again, Jewish group of people who would say, I can have a little bit of Rome, and I can have a little bit of God, doesn't sacrifice my Judaism, right? And in that way, in our world today, we are pretty Herodian, right? We've got all the nice advancements. I like my Apple Watch, right? I like my laptop and the healthcare, and I like to engage in the entertainment of today. I like to watch the sports. I like to watch the movies that are coming out nominated for the Oscars, right? The entertainment of our culture today we, too, are navigating the tensions of engaging our culture well without compromising our faith and our worldview, right? There's some tension in how to navigate that. How do we live in our world faithfully? So we have the Pharisees who are unwavering, fiercely devoted to living out the law of the Torah. We have Herodians who align with Herod, they align with Rome, have a vested interest in maintaining the world the Roman Empire provides. And these two groups are fundamentally on opposite sides of the spectrum. In fact, typically, they hated each other. Pharisees thought the Herodians were weak and compromised in their faith, and Herodians were not interested in being controlled by or living in the world of the Pharisees. There's tension. Difference in view about how you live faithfully to God in the culture of the day. But when it came to Jesus, we see them working together, conspiring together. It's like the saying, um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? They had a common enemy in Jesus. So we know they're working together, to catch Jesus in his words, to trap him. It reads, they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance to the truth. This statement is pure flattery. If gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face, flattery is saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back. This was flattery. And it's ironic, because what they say is completely true, right? Jesus is a man of integrity. He isn't swayed by others. He is the word that teaches the way of God in accordance to truth. But they didn't believe that. They call him teacher, but they have no interest in actually receiving or sitting under his teaching. And then the loaded question, the grenade, right? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Uh Uh-oh! rot row. At this, I imagine people would have stopped, or they would have leaned in like you could hear a pin drop. What is Jesus going to say? What side is Jesus on here? The imperial tax was a tribute, a yearly tribute, and it was weighty for the people. Everyone had feelings about this. And the Pharisees, the Herodians, they seize that. They're seizing the sensitivity of the issue. By asking Jesus to pick a side, there's no winning answer. It's a lose-lose. If he says, yes, pay it, he loses the people. He becomes a collaborator to this corrupt pagan government. And the Pharisees can say, see, told you he wasn't who he said he is, right? But if he says no, he outs himself as a rebel. A revolutionary. They're trying to make him choose between being a coward or a rebel. Either way, he's going to make some people angry. Either, way, either side is problematic. And the Pharisees and Herodians, I imagine they feel like geniuses. <laughs> like they came up with a devastating blow. It's finally going to turn the tides against Jesus, right? This is it. How are you going to get out of this one? Jesus. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. The denarius was the coin, the coin that you would use to pay this tribute to Caesar. They brought the coin, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Whose image "And the inscription? This is what the coins would have looked like. The image is of Caesar. Different Caesars would print new coins. Um, So whoever the ruler of the time is, that's the image, and the inscription is going to speak of the divinity and worship of Caesar as a divine God. Every tribute coin will have this. So it's not just money. It's also a religious symbol. It's propaganda. Again, you can feel the tension here, what it feels like to desire to worship and follow the one true God in accordance to Torah, who again, over and over again, commanded Israel to have no other God but Yahweh, and then to carry around a coin like this, Tiberius Caesar, the divine son of Augustus, It's not a neutral thing. The coin itself is not a neutral thing. Whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed. Golly, it's brilliant. It's a stunning response here. It's like a poetry slam moment. I imagine the reaction would be like this. (laughs) Or like this, the next one. right? Yes. Stunning. Stunning. Jesus says a few things with this statement. First, he legitimizes and limits governing leaders. He tells them to pay the tax, but he makes a distinction in their worship. Governing leaders deserve honor, but in God alone, we place our hope and worship. Governing leaders deserve honor, but in God alone, we place our hope and worship. Think about it. Jesus doesn't say, um, Caesar's a bad dude, so resist because of his character. Or Caesar's pretending to be divine, so reject his authority because of his false ideology. He doesn't say, wait until he acknowledges me before you obey him. He doesn't. But he also says, not everything belongs to Caesar. Caesar. They were all looking for a Messiah who would overthrow the government. But Jesus proved himself to be a good tax-paying citizen of Rome, despite all that we know. What do we do with that? Bigger question, what does it look like for us to be good citizens, despite all we know about the governing system we find ourselves in? In 1 Peter 2.17, we're told to show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Honor the emperor! Honor a pagan emperor. We see God intentionally choose and use Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, an oppressive, offensive ruler in the days of the Jewish exile in the Old Testament. He was awful. The people in governing authority, they will answer to God. And our charge as believers is to pray for anyone in authority, whether we agree with them or not, whether we would want to hang out with them or not. We are to honor the office they hold, and that is how the Bible would lead us. And we're people of hope, because we're citizens of God's kingdom. We're citizens of Larimore or Weld County or wherever you might be watching from, right? Most of us, citizens of the USA. But ultimately, these citizenships will expire. Our ultimate citizenship. Dare I say our primary citizenship, God's kingdom, the kingdom of light, our heavenly citizenship will not expire. We can put our hope in that coming kingdom, which is breaking in all the time. We can be confident in the end game of this story. And it's that confidence that should change how buoyant we are in our world. Right? If all you lo- have to look forward to is here, in this world, then of course politics will inevitably have an outsized significance. If everything is about here and now, if that's the perspective, then the hope will always be in the outcomes of the next president the next promises, the next governing term, and those are important, but they're not the place for all our hopes. Um, Did you guys know there's an election coming? Did you know that? Yeah, surprise. There's an election coming, speaking of tents, right? Those of us who are followers of Jesus, who want to be faithful to God and his kingdom, What is the posture? What is the engagement, the invitation for us? How are we to live in the world in this cultural moment? I've been asking that, pondering that, praying through that question as I prepared for this weekend. Now, we should be engaged. If you are able to vote, educate yourself and vote. It is a privilege to be able to do so. But aside from that, Aside from the outcomes and however we might feel about them, aside from that, how are we as followers of Jesus to navigate our next year interpersonally, um, spiritually, emotionally, mentally? I made a list of some challenges. They're for me, um, but I'm sharing them with you. They're challenges. The first is to choose a posture of hope. Hope might feel naive, maybe silly, Foolish, even. But in light of the resurrection of Jesus, in light of eternity and remembering that our God is a God who's making all things new, because is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, if we are focusing on him, his power, his presence, his love and delight in us, then we ought to be the most hopeful people in every room. I asked myself that. What would it look like to be the most hopeful person? in every room. I want to be. Now, one way that I cultivate this in myself um, is starting with prayer. I have a prayer wall in my office. I want to show you a picture of it. It's my office, welcome. And this is my prayer wall. You can kind of see I have uh, three sections. Well, you can't see very well, but there are different color clips that represent each section. I have a section of prayers. These are measurable, tangible things that I am praying for. The answers is in the middle. It's things that that once were on the prayer side. And then I have a section of miracle things, things that I will declare a miracle, and I don't want to forget them, right? And I've been doing this for several years. It didn't start this big. I promise it started smaller, but it's done a few things for me. First, it's cultivated in me um, a gratitude. It's a way of reminding myself of the places and ways that God has shown up for me and for the people in my world that I have prayed for, when I am prone to forget. It reminds me that prayer does actually change things, and that God is still active in my world, legit, tangibly. When I go to pray, I'm faced with how God has answered me before in my prayer wall. And it challenges me to pray boldly and to remember the things that I've committed to praying for. Feel free to steal the idea. I'll give you the dimensions later. And even if you don't want a wall, or if that looks big and overwhelming, it says it's like, it looks like I'm really faithful. I actually need it because I'm not so faithful. <laughs> right? But writing down your prayers, however you might do it, it's a challenge for you to cultivate the posture of hope. That's the challenge. The second is to look for opportunities to be charitable, actively looking for them, especially to neighbors who may be on the other side of the political aisle from you. Right? Hopeful and prayerful for our enemies. Right? Now, I don't have enemies. Genuinely, I don't feel that kind of animosity for anyone. But when I think of the political climate of our day, I think people with differing political views, especially passionate ones, can feel like enemies. What might it look like to be charitable, kind to a fault? You know, Romans 2 said it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. The word for repentance means to turn around or to change your mind. So if I want to change someone's mind, or if I just want to have a conversation, a genuine dialogue about the things of life with the people around me, kindness leads But what might it look like to be really over the top about that? Really extra, if I could say that. I love the play and the movie Les Miserables. Have you guys seen this? Les Miserables. Early on in the story, Jean Valjean, the main character, after being freed from 19 years of hard labor, he's taken in by a local bishop in a Christian charity. And Valjean, in a hasty moment, steals the bishop's silver. He flees in the night, he's caught, and he's brought in the next morning to the bishop to be accused of the truth. He's a thief. So he's drug in for his moment of reckoning, and the bishop, seeing him, turns and grabs two candlesticks, saying he forgot those, too. It's a beautiful moment, touching moment of charity and kindness. It's a little over the top, right? I want to be like that, over the top, with charity and kindness, looking for opportunities to be charitable. The third challenge is to be slow and thoughtful with words. I've been so convicted lately in my time in Scripture of the power of what we say, of empty words or thoughtless words, to be slow to speak and quick to listen like it says in James. It's not easy. It is not my baseline. tell you that. I tend to leak at the mouth, if you know what I mean. But particularly in a tense season, like election season, will be being careful with our words is vital. I tell my middle school and high school friends when it comes to social media, if you wouldn't be comfortable with whatever you're writing in a message or a comment being plastered on a billboard with your name on it, or even on your t-shirt, like it's on your t-shirt for everyone to see that you said that, if you wouldn't be comfortable with that, don't say it. Don't say it. If you are a Christian, if you're known as a Christian, and you have Bible verses in your social media bios, but you wound with your words and your aggression on the internet, it's time to reevaluate. In James 1, 26 and 27, it says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Ouch. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of what's in your heart is what comes out of your mouth. These verses make me pause. They make me pause. What is going on in my heart? What is going on in my inner world? And how does that spew out of me? Am I even aware of that? The fourth thing helps with this awareness, and that's create dedicated space for silence. Studies say that our culture is now the loudest or the noisiest it's ever been in history. It's possible to have sound or noise fill every waking moment of the day, but God whispers to us. Finding time to be quiet and still in our world today requires incredible intentionality. But getting there allows us to see ourselves and reorient, realign ourselves to God. Making dedicated space to be silent and still before God is one way we intentionally settle ourselves. We were not made for a 24-hour news cycle. We were not intended to hold all the knowledge about the heavy, hard things happening in our world all the time. It's a gift to be informed. It's important to be informed. But how often is the news cycle on in your presence? How much time do you spend scrolling? Doom scrolling is what they call mindlessly scrolling through negative news articles, posts, content, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And in contrast, how often are you silent? How often are you still before God? Do you have a dedicated time for prayer? You know, I've been on a journey of befriending silence. It has been a journey. <laughs> and now I'm a morning person, although I haven't always been. I'll tell you that I've become a morning person. And these days I've incorporated silence into my morning routine, my morning time with the Lord, even if it's just 5 to 10 minutes of silence before God. It's a game changer for me. But even if you're not a morning person, You know, one way my husband does this, he sets a timer on his phone for every afternoon at 2.30. It goes off, it reminds him to take a moment to pause and pray. Often he walks for that. Another thing that I practice is having a day of solitude a month, where I can have dedicated time silent before God. Sometimes it's a half day or a full day. But I want to challenge you to create space for this with me. Choose a posture of hope, look for opportunities to be charitable, be slow and thoughtful with words, create dedicated space for silence. Now, so often when people think of this passage, they think about Caesar, our Caesar's taxes. But the power of this statement, if I can say the heavy hitter of it, is the second half, give to God what's God's. Whose image is this and whose inscription Caesar's? They replied, give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. The implication here is on the unspoken question. Whose image and whose inscription is on you? Mm. Because you see, um, you and I were made in the image of God. Says that right in Genesis. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we're also God's representatives. Paul charges us, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We're made to represent him, to image him, to say, Gosh, you want to know what God is like? Watch me. Watch my humility, my patience, my grace, my generosity, my service, my love, my buoyancy, my hope. We will certainly fail. We will say too much or not enough. We will misrepresent our good God in our world, and our culture. Most certainly we will. And again, God is there to meet us, to offer us forgiveness and grace so we can again know and experience the love and delight of God again and again for me, for you, for all people, that all all people might be reconciled to him because of His grace and goodness towards us that we share with the world. We are God's ambassadors. Whose image, whose inscription is on you? The question being asked about taxes is much smaller than the answer that was given. It's as if he says, oh, give Caesar his pennies, this is about you, this is about you. Give Caesar his coins, he printed them, right? But don't you ever give him your worship. So how then do you give God what's God's? Some versions use the word render. Give back. Give back to God what's God's. Sometimes we live our lives like we have control over way more than we actually do. Right? We're little control freaks, aren't we? Everything we have, everything we receive, every breath we take, every beat of our heart, we are not in control of. We are stewards. Remembering this, acknowledging this, and surrendering control is an act of worship, right? So what things do you need to render to God in your life right now? Are there areas that you're holding maybe tight-fisted? Maybe it's time, finances, Um, relationships, fears, dreams, something you're trying to make happen. Whatever it is for you, we have the opportunity to place ourselves before him, place those things before him like an offering, right? As an act of worship. So now we're gonna have a moment of silent prayer before God, I want to give you that. I want to use this moment to talk about whatever this has brought up in you with God. Even if that means um, naming the things that you, you don't feel ready to release yet, you don't know how to release them yet, that, be honest about that before Him, right? What things do you need to render and give back to God in your life right now? Take a moment and pray over that. God, we declare you as the Alpha and Omega, the creator, the sustainer of life. You are a healer. You are a comforter. You are a shepherd. You are a guide for us. We remember and receive your love and your delight for us. It is outrageous. If you're here and you've never placed your trust in Jesus before and you want to, you could just pray this short prayer with me. God, I want to follow you. I want to know you. And right now, I come before you, I receive your forgiveness for my sin. I surrender my life. I trust you for my future. I want to, God. Thank you. And Lord, right now, we do pray for the elections, for the election year that's upon us. God, we are so thankful for the freedom we have in this country for the privilege it is to have a democracy like we have, especially with all that's going on in the world right now, God. Lord, we pray for our government leaders, the people coming to mind right now. We place them before you, those running for office, all of them. God, we we pray you would meet them, empower them, direct them. We ask for your discernment, your wisdom, your guidance. And we pray you would go before us in this next year. We pray for your kingdom to come on on earth as it is in heaven, yes, God. Help us to be buoyant. Give us the strength to trust you, to be people of hope in our world. We need you, God. Lord, and we do just pray for our high school students who are in Estes right now. We pray you would draw near to them, that they would draw near to you. This would be a moment in their stories that changes the directory of their lives. Thank you, God. And thanks for your love. We'll never get over it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Appreciate you guys. You guys can stay in this posture if you'd like to. We're going to continue to worship the song, I Surrender. Right? I Surrender. You can stand if you're able, or feel free to stay seated as we worship. some folks up here who would love to pray with you. If anything was brought up to the surface, especially if maybe you prayed that prayer with me for the very first time, I am really want to encourage you to come back and receive prayer from these folks, or come back and visit us at the Welcome Center. We want to support you. Sometimes you think you need to know how to follow Jesus on your own. It's really helpful to have some support, and we want to support you if that was you. And we would love to meet you and visit with you again as you guys go be hopeful be hopeful may we be buoyant right representing him imaging him to the world right amen may that be true go in peace to serve the lord bless you